Welcome to our Catechism class. It's a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help you learn Christian doctrine with a warm and practical application. Each lesson has its own study guide, and the web link to find that guide can be found in the episode notes. Okay, let's start the lesson. In our last Catechism lesson, we briefly looked at the words of Peter in 1 Peter 3 and 21, where he said, The like figure where unto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it looks on the face of it as if Peter is telling us that baptism saves us, until we examine the text more closely and find that the sacraments, the ordinances of the church, are actually only instruments in our salvation, that the outward act is not what converts the soul, but rather that it appeals to my conscience and points me to Christ, who washed away all of my sins through his atoning death on the cross for me and for you. That's a point that is reiterated in question 72 and question 73, in the Catechism, where we are asked, firstly in 72, does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? And the answer is no, only the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. And then in question 73, why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? And the answer is, God speaks in this way for a good reason. Our instructor wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ remove our sins just as water takes away dirt from the body. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. So let's assume that we understand the role of baptism in pointing us to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, and we can then move on to question 74. In 74 we're asked, are infants also to be baptised? Now there's a controversial issue. Now I'm never afraid to tackle controversy. So for the benefit of my Baptist brothers and sisters, and to help those who think that infant baptism is a christening, I want to try and explain why some Christians practice the baptism of the children of believers. If you are a credo-baptist, someone who believes that baptism should only be on confession of faith, then please be aware I am not trying to convert you. I'm simply trying to explain the Pedro-Baptist position. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. So 
So here's that difficult question, question 74. The Catechist asks us, should infants too be baptised? And the answer he gives is yes. Infants, as well as adults, belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit, who works faith, are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism, as a sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the New Covenant. So the Catechist, like most of the Reformers, believes that baptism is for believers and the children of believers. He links this to what he has taught us about the promise of the Gospel in question 66. What are the sacraments? The sacraments are holy, visible signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by their use he might the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel. And this is the promise, that God graciously grants us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life because of the one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. That covenant promise was given at first to Abraham in Genesis 17 and verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. That same covenant promise was reiterated by Isaiah. In Isaiah 44, verse 1 to 3. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith the Lord that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thy Jesuron, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offering. And in Psalm 22, I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Now that promise is not abrogated or reversed by anything in the New Testament. When Peter spoke to Jews, gathered at Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, he simply assumed that they would know that God's salvation has been promised to believers and that promise of salvation extended to their children. So he said in Acts chapter 2 verse 38, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. That promise of the Holy Ghost, who comes to indwell Christians at regeneration, the promise of the gospel, is for God's people, and for their children, 
and even to those pagans whom the Lord will call to be his. Now how does that promise of the gospel apply to and affect our Christian families? Well, no Christian, whether you're a credo-baptist or a pedo-baptist, would deny that children born into Christian homes have a wonderfully privileged position. When I grew up, I lived at a home where I was sent to a church, sent to Sunday school and to the boys' brigade, but that was a cultural thing back in the Belfast of the 1960s. My parents had little or no interest in the Christian faith, and when I came to faith in Christ in my early teens, there was very little encouragement or godliness in the home. Some of my friends, though, had been raised in homes where their parents were believers, and their experience was profoundly different. They had family prayers. They had been encouraged to attend church as a family. Christian principles were being applied in the home. That's what Paul meant when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 7 and 14, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. Well, how can we say that our children are holy? Well, they certainly should be different from the children of pagan, secular families. They should have different values. They should be taught a different outlook on life. They are holy, separated from the world, kept away to some extent from its filth, as best their parents can do that. Now, none of those things means that they are Christians. They are not as yet, perhaps, the recipients of salvation. Their souls have not been regenerated within them. But they are the recipients of the promise of salvation. They are the children of the covenant, just as certainly as were those children of Abraham. There is one more aspect of this special blessing of growing up in a Christian home. Covenant children are to obey their parents in the Lord, in Ephesians 6 and 1. Of course, as a general principle, parents should discipline their children, and children should learn to obey them, at the very least for their own safety. But these parents in Ephesus, to whom Paul is writing, are Christians, and their children are to obey them in the Lord. The children of Christian homes have an obligation to obey God, to receive Christian instruction from their parents, and to obey them in that respect. The Canons of Dort, Article 17, on the salvation of the infants of believers, states, Since we must make judgments about God's will from his word, which testifies that the children of believers are holy, not by nature, but by virtue of the gracious covenant in which they, together with their parents, are included. Godly parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children, whom God calls out of this life in infancy. Now, when God gave that covenant promise to Abraham, he marked it with a sign, the sign of the covenant was circumcision. It was the cutting away of sinful flesh and the shedding of blood. Genesis 17 verse 9 to 14. And God said unto Abraham, 
Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you, and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. We looked at that in question 66. But that covenant sign of circumcision was done away with in the new covenant and replaced with baptism, the new sign of the covenant promise. Paul wrote in Colossians 2 verse 11 to 13, In whom, in the Lord Jesus, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. He's speaking there about the death of his flesh, the shedding of Christ's blood. Verse 12, Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So just as Abraham applied the sign of the covenant to his children, we are to apply the sign of the covenant to the children of Christian believers. Paul distinctly tells us that we are the children of Abraham. Galatians 3 and verse 6 to 8 even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Remember, baptism's not about me or my decision for Christ, or my testimony. Baptism primarily is to point us to Christ and to help us to focus on the promise of the gospel, the washing away of our sins by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. So our catechist sums all of this up when he says, Therefore by baptism, a sign of the covenant, they, the children of believers, must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. He adds that this was done in the old covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the new covenant. The Christian parent who presents their infant child to be baptised does so knowing that their little baby is an inheritor of Adam's sin. And that sin must be atoned for. And some day that little baby will have to come to Christ and be saved and have his sins forgiven if he is ever to be a member of God's kingdom. At baptism, those parents acknowledge that Christ is the only Saviour and they enter into a covenant with the Lord that as they are faithful in bringing that child up in a loving Christian home, and within the visible church, instructing the child in all righteousness, that the Lord will in due course, and in his sovereign timing, draw that child to himself for salvation. 
but some of our Credo Baptist brothers and sisters will ask us directly, where is the verse in the New Testament that commands us to baptise babies? It's a bit like a gotcha question. Well, of course, we could point them to that verse I quoted earlier from Colossians. Or we can mention the instances of household baptisms in the book of Acts. For example, in Acts 16 and 31, And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Actually, let's just dwell on that for a moment or two. That's from the story of the Philippian jailer. We know from the Bible that the jailer and his family heard the gospel. Acts 16 and 32 And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So the jailer and his family heard the good news of salvation. But we also know that the jailer believed and was saved. There is the evidence of a changed life. For the man who once had ruthlessly and illegally cast Paul and Silas into the deepest, darkest part of the prison and placed them in stocks, is now washing their wounds and feeding them. Verse 33 And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Verse 34 Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. He's a changed man. And we know that the jailer was baptised, as were those who lived in his home. And he was baptised at once, he and all his family. And we know that the whole family rejoiced at what the Lord had done. Again, verse 34. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, we know all of those things. What we don't know is the spiritual condition of his family, other than the fact that they had been promised that through faith in Christ they could be saved, that they had heard the gospel preached, that they had been baptised along with the jailer, and that they rejoiced with the jailer at his conversion. Now, the wording of verse 34 is absolutely crucial. And the ESV is very clear. And the account given by Luke in Acts is very, very precise. The jailer rejoiced and his whole family rejoiced with him because he, the jailer, had been saved. The phrase used in the Greek is pepistukus tutheu. He believed in God. Pepis tukus is singular. Now there's only one logical conclusion to be drawn from that, and it is that when the jailer believed and was saved, his household, whatever the membership of that household was, was brought within the terms of the covenant of grace, and to seal that relationship were baptised, as are our covenant children today who have all the privileges of that covenant relationship enjoyed by the jailer's family. Oh, and one more thing. 
talking about gotcha moments and about that direct question, where is the verse in the New Testament that commands us to baptise babies? I would contend that the burden of proof that baptism is not to be offered to the children of believers rests upon credo-baptists, not those who believe and practice baptism as the sign of the covenant. That sign of the covenant, established with Abraham for his children, which we are, as we've seen, had been applied to children for thousands of years. If it was to be suddenly forbidden in and among the covenant people of God, would there not be a direct command telling those early Jewish believers right at the very beginning of the book of Acts to stop including children? within the covenant and to stop marking them with the sign of the covenant and that would be a hugely staggering change in doctrine and practice for those Jewish believers who were gathered into the Christian church at Pentecost. So as the Credo Baptists themselves would say, where's the verse? Where's the verse where the first Christians were ordered to stop including their children in that covenant with God after 2,000 years of doing so? So when the Catechist asks us if our children also are to be baptised, we must answer enthusiastically with a resounding yes. Baptism is the outward sign of inclusion in the covenant community of God, just as circumcision was in the Old Testament. Well, before we finish, I think some caution is needed here. Firstly, baptism is never a christening. Believers who practice infant baptism should never ever refer to it as that, even in casual conversation. Calling baptism a christening gives the false impression that babies, by the mere act of splashing a little water upon them, makes them Christians, that they become Christians. When our credo-baptist brothers and sisters hear covenant Baptists using that word, they simply assume that they think that baptism saves. As we have seen, that is very far from what Covenant Baptists believe. When baptism brings a person within the fold of the visible church for instruction in righteousness, it does not make that person a Christian. And secondly, Covenant Baptists offer baptism to believers in Christ and to the infant children of those believers, not to unbelievers, not to the infant children of unbelievers, not to everyone and anyone who wants the baby done as a formal ritual, or a family tradition, or a good luck charm, or an excuse to wet the baby's head. For those who are not able to make a credible profession of faith in Christ, we can surely all offer them a simple service of thanksgiving that directs our praise to God for his mercy in the preservation of the life of the mother and the baby, for the baby's safe delivery. And we can pray for that family and for that child that they too would one day turn to Christ, 
in humble repentance and faith and find salvation for their never-dying soul. Well, that's my explanation of the Covenant Baptist position. It's not a long explanation. I haven't covered it all. But I hope that at least from now on, when you hear people talking about Covenant Baptism or Pedo-Baptism, you won't just write it off as people practising christenings or as a hangover from Catholicism. I hope you'll understand that there is a theological basis and a biblical basis that wells up from the wonderful doctrine of the covenant of grace, how God has dealt with his covenant people in both the Old Testament and the New. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.